Hello, everyone. Joel Sandu here, and we're back with the second season of the Global Futures podcast. And we're excited about what we have in store for you, including a new tune to our podcast, thanks to the music producer A Cosmos. That's A H exclamation mark K O S M O S. You can follow her on Spotify. This podcast is part of the Global Governance Futures Robert Bosch Foundation Multilateral Dialogues program. So, what's new about the second season? Well, this time around, we look ahead to the year 2035 and explore the futures of climate-related conflict, media and information, and the politics of inequality. We'll be doing so with an exciting cast of GGF fellows hailing from Brazil and Indonesia to South Africa and Germany and many countries in between. Together with the brightest minds from these countries, we will look at how some of the global challenges are perceived around the world, and we'll be discussing different ideas on how to tackle them. So stay tuned. Please share your thoughts by emailing us on ggfutures@gppi.net, and please like, subscribe, and share the Global Futures podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. In this episode, my colleague Sonia Sugrubova sits down with Alistair Chang. Alistair is a Robert Bosch Stiftung Fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. He studies media literacy and disinformation. Previously, Alistair was the executive director of Libraries Without Borders, a nonprofit organization that has innovated library partnerships in over 25 countries. Hello, Alistair, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I want to start right away with your current research on media literacy that you're doing now. Would you just briefly explain to me what media literacy is? How would you define it, and what it means to you to be media literate?、Mm-hmm. So I like the Center for Media Literacy's definition, which focuses on whether or not you know how to ask the right questions after. Watching something, listening to something, seeing something online, right,、uh, or on any media platform. And for me, the skill is not just a technical skill of whether or not you are able to create a photo or upload a photo or go to a certain website, but rather about how you evaluate and consume and analyze those mediums. You moved to Germany like two years ago, a year ago. In July. Oh, in July.、Yes. Okay.、Half、I look a, like I'm really, I've, I've really fitted now, like a right? Real,、yes. A real Berliner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. In July. Anyway, before you worked in the U.S.、Um, That's right. Yeah. And now working here in Germany, what's your take on media literacy here? Do you see some kind of big difference from the U.S.? What What's your main take on that? Well, I think that the problem is the same. That In democracies that value free speech, it's very difficult to agree on who the legitimate party should be, or ought to be, or could be, to decide what is good or bad information. How do you define those two words of good and bad information, and how do you、um, legitimize an institution to assess that and then also、um, regulate it? And I think that is a problem that both the U.S. and and honestly most of Europe shares as well. The extent to which it is taught in schools in the U.S. versus in Germany, I think, also varies because of Germany's federal system, and because of、uh, the in, in a similar way, the education systems in the U.S. are also very diverse. That some students are are very well prepared and some are not. 
Yeah, what's your take on actually teaching media literacy and increasing media literacy? Do you think there should be different methods maybe for kids and adults or for even maybe elderly elderly people? I'm sorry. I think that often actually the conversation gets stuck around curriculum. And so there are so many different projects out there that are building curriculum for specific audiences. And I, I'm glad you mentioned seniors because I think that currently they're one of the most vulnerable groups that get taken advantage of, both on the consumer fraud side and, of course, political manipulation side. And there are groups that are building curriculum. The challenge, I think, that is more difficult to answer, find a solution for, is how to get the curriculum to those audiences once it's actually built, right? If you build a website that's meant to teach people about media literacy, but no one clicks it, it's not useful, right? And so for me, that's one of the big, biggest problems of uh, that we haven't quite figured out in this space, which is how do you incentivize people to learn these skills and or how do you make them more relevant, right, to people's daily, daily lives? That's actually an interesting point because nowadays it seems like just reading articles, just written information is not enough anymore because there are so many different ways to provide information like audio video visuals do you think we should shift a little bit how we what kind of formats we use to give people information for me it goes back to the point i made previously which is about really meeting people where they are if the if you're trying to reach populations under the age of 18 and you're not using TikTok to try to communicate with them and you're creating articles with text um, and posting them on a on a blog somewhere, I think you are going to have a really hard time getting your message across. For me, it's really about fit, right? And finding the ways to communicate with the audience in the platform where they are already using is super, super important. I think some people get that. And, you know, I think a lot of the advertising industry gets that. There are certain political politicians who get that. And I think too often people who have really important things to say are not are not adapting necessarily to meet people on the on the platforms where they are using. Yeah, I can totally see that in Russia, where I come from. So let's say younger people, especially in bigger cities, now they can access more information. And and even like YouTube is very big in Russia right now. Many journalists go to these platforms to, you know, reach their audiences. And like older people, they have no idea that it even exists. And that's that that's that example raises a really important question for me, which is, you know, thinking about older people, if you don't have a grandchild who is teaching you the latest, who is responsible for teaching you new technologies, how to use new technologies, how to avoid the traps that are inevitably parts of new technologies? Um, is it the role of the state? Is it the role of private companies? Should you be responsible as an individual yourself to do it, right? That is a really big question for me yeah. that I think is, is, is also unanswered. Yeah, it's quite controversial, I guess, especially in the places where media is more state-controlled. Again, for example, going back to, to Russia, <laughs> uh, my previous example, all the state TV channels, all the main TV channels and newspapers, they're owned by state. 
and state is not interested in giving older people access to, you know, modern digital platforms because then it will be harder for the state to communicate their message to these older people and kind of like their propaganda. And independent media or journalists who are more on the opposition side of things, they very often don't have access to these TV channels or newspapers because they just don't say the right things. The Russian example, I think, provides an interesting counterpoint, which highlights, I think, how a lot of what's happening currently, I think, in the West of the way that we're trying to combat disinformation is not necessarily leveraging our comparative advantage, right? Which is, you know, I think that the strength of democracy really rests in its people. And if you look at the history of education um, in Europe and in the U.S., it's, it's not about Originally, it was not about getting you a job. It was about educating you to be a citizen. And when you think about the role of education as essentially training citizens to be better citizens, right? I think we've really failed in a lot of ways to be able to do that in a way that allows us to flourish, right? In, 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 in contrast to authoritarian, more authoritarian regimes. Instead, I think what we're trying to do right now is follow suit by either regulating, censoring, or, you know, especially the censorship piece is just going to upset so many people, regardless of which way you go. I think anything you take down is a, is a really, raises really, really big problems with free speech. And for me, that's not necessarily the strategic way to move forward with it. It's not necessarily looking at what the strengths of a democracy are and focusing on those and strengthening those in opposition to, for example, what's happening in Russia, right? I think we're falling into a trap to do the same thing. So your current research is focused on that primarily. Well, there are just... two big questions that interest me. One is how to make media literacy a sexy subject. How do you make it something that people want to study that or is required to study, right? And how do you make it something that is more accessible to more people? And the second the second point for me that's I think is very difficult to answer is how you assess whether or not someone has become media literate, right? When, uh, in, in the way that we can assess someone's reading level, how do you assess whether someone is asking the right questions after watching a, a video on YouTube, right? And for me, without having a way to quantify that in a standardized way, makes it really difficult to integrate into structural solutions or funding schemes, right? And without that piece answered, I think we're going to have a hard time integrating media literacy in its current form into broader solutions to tackle, I think, a lot of big problems, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, so for me, those are two big questions that, that I'm looking at. What do you think about the importance of teaching people foreign languages, for example, in relation to that? Because I, I can see that very often it really limits the amount of information you get if you only speak let's say one language and also the quality of information in some cases so that's that's interesting right because i'm sure you're looking at this from the you can read russian news russian language yeah, news and looking yeah. at 
English language news and looking yeah. at the differences in which exactly. things are portrayed, right? For me, actually, the bigger learning comes with the shift in mindsets that come with learning new languages. So the example that everyone gives in the U.S. always is how Alaskan Inuits have many, many languages, uh, many words for snow, right? Mm-hmm. And so what comes from that is you have a very different understanding of different kinds of snow, whereas in English, you know, yes, we have a few, but mostly we just see any any lump of snow as snow, right? And what comes with learning different languages is also different perspectives mm-hmm. to look at any concept or any object in a new way, right? And I think for me, that skill is so hard to teach. How do you teach the skill of doing the same thing to a photo you see online or a video that you see online to ask those questions about perspective and context? Let me just ask you about your previous project that you worked on, which is Libraries Without Borders. What was the goal of the project and what were you working on there? So Libraries Without Borders is a international nonprofit that I am currently serving on the board of now. And I really love this group. I think we've done some amazing work thinking about how to expand access to information and education to places where it's tough to have those opportunities. So we did a lot of work in refugee camps, for example, in the African Great Lakes. And in the past couple years, a lot of work with Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. In 2016, we were doing, uh, we had a partnership with the Ministry of Culture in Colombia to think about how libraries could support the peace building process after the peace treaty was signed. And for me in the US, one of the one of the most interesting and exciting projects for me was working with public librarians to extend their services to places that people are waiting. So in, for example, in laundromats, to go to where people are when they're available to provide basic educational and informational services, knowing that, especially in the US, if you're poor or you're living in poverty, it's really, really tough to find the time and have the have the flexibility to be able to sort through all of the bad information that's being pummeled at you. And how can we help? And you also provided people with access to internet, right, in some remote yes. areas. And did you see some challenges, you know, when you give people access to internet, if they didn't have it before? Did you see some challenges in like trying to help people navigate through this new amount of information they receive and yeah Yeah, I think one of the things that come you know I I was getting angry uh, and frustrated with how many people were taking advantage of vulnerable populations and how the internet provided a way to amplify their manipulation or exploitation the ways in which certainly the internet itself is not a unbiased platform given the way that a lot of search algorithms work right but be going beyond that actually for me the most frustrating thing is how those who are more fluent in technologies are taking advantage of those who are less fluent in using these technologies, and how do you stop those players, um, especially in if they use more 
uh, encrypted platforms like WhatsApp is really, really tough, right? And for me, that was really frustrating, feeling like you can't do much to stop that at the structural level. Uh, so that's what I'm looking for, right? How do you how do you prevent the person who's trying to take advantage of a newcomer refugee who's trying to take all that person's wealth and money to uh, and and sharing false information to try to take advantage of them before they get taken advantage of? And do you have some ideas of how to do that? Like, do you just you know teach people that okay, you see this is a scam like oh you see this is an example of a bad person trying to take advantage of you or like how do you communicate that to this vulnerable people do you have like some kind of workshops on safe internet <laughs> or yeah. something like that i mean what what makes this particular aspect of the of media literacy most challenging is that it's not a you know 30 minute course on how do you use a mouse, right? It's not a technical skill in that way. For me, it is really an, another way of teaching critical thinking and adapting critical thinking skills to new technologies, which is a much more complicated thing to teach and to assess, right? If you were to draw some parallels between teaching media literacy in, let's say, US or Germany, like places basically where you would imagine people are already like so tech savvy and like know what they're doing when they go online versus more remote areas where people didn't really have access to internet until recently. Do you see some similarities in approach you would take to teaching media literacy? I think absolutely uh, there, there are similarities and differences. I'll start with one of the differences that stands out to me. Often when you think about content itself, the differences are enormous, right? Let's take colors, for example. The association of white in China is death. And so if you're pushing disinformation or, you know, having some kind of way of trying to taint someone's character using the color white, let's say, an algorithm that is done in a way that uses the American mindset is not going to catch that kind of association um, if it's not contextualized. And so I think content itself is so contextual in how the symbolism, you know, is it sarcasm? Is it irony? Is it is it a joke? What is it is so culturally specific that I think it would be very, very difficult to draw commonalities across different different geographies, different cultures, different languages. The piece that I think is very common, and I come back to this, this critical thinking skill, even in places where we've had the internet for a long time, I don't think that our populations are necessarily well equipped to be asking questions after they consume media, right? So as an example, the, the Stanford History Education Group, which is a big leader in this space, did a survey with a few thousand students and found that 96% of the high school students they surveyed weren't considering how ties to the fossil fuel industry were affecting the credibility about a website that was talking about climate change. And the ability to actually contextualize information that you receive, asking who put it out there, what incentives they might have to put it out there, cross-checking with other sources, all of that is not automatic yet for most Americans, right? And 
let alone somebody who's learning how to get online for the first time. So I think in that way, there are very common skills and processes that can be taught, even if the particular content itself might be different in t across time and place. Right. Yeah, so it all comes down to critical thinking. I think so. Yeah. I think so, right? Okay. I think there are very big challenges with regulation. And, um, you know, one one of the NATO studies that just came out from the Stratcom Center of Excellence found that, you know, actually, this is such a fun study. They, they uh, bought a bunch of um, likes and comments and followers and tried to see how many of those inauthentic behaviors stayed on the platform, you know, four weeks out, and then after they flagged it as, hey, this is inauthentic. And, you know, self-regulation from tech companies is not enough. More than four-fifths of the inauthentic engagements stayed on, right? And to, to me, that's an example, one of many examples of how regulation of social media platforms, whether that's self-regulated or from external regulation, is always playing catch-up, right? You're always chasing the problem rather than proactively stopping the problem, which I think critical uh, thinking and, and media literacy can do. Let's say there is a parent who has a kid and is just about to buy this kid first smartphone or like a first tablet mm -hmm. what would be the advice you'd give to this parent in terms of how to teach your kid to navigate online and like what parents should look out for gosh so much right i think um and and yet also i don't think it's any different from how you would have done this pre-technology it's just faster so the questions of to me actually when you're asking that i think of how in school in the U.S., I was always given the anecdote of, you know, don't take candy from a stranger. And if you really break that down, you're asking the question of what incentive does this stranger have to give you the candy? Who is the stranger, right? And what does he want from you? Right. And or she, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe right now we're still teaching this in a way that hasn't been quite broken down into pieces enough, but that learning from that one anecdote, I think applies exactly to the questions you need to ask online. If someone is, maybe it's not candy, but if someone is sharing information to you that makes you super, super angry, right? I think that's candy in a way. You should be asking, what incentive does the sharer of that information have to get you so upset, to get you so emotional, whether that's sad, angry, scared, any of those are to me the new candy okay thank you so much alistair it was a pleasure talking to you and also thank you for the advice now i'll always think about candies when i'm online <laughs> um, don't take candy from a stranger yeah i will not and no one should <laughs> okay thank you so much for being on the podcast and keep on your great research and your amazing work thank you This episode of the Global Futures podcast was presented and produced by my colleague Sonia Sugarbova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Alistair Chang. Do check out our host of GGF products, including Scenario Reports and other podcasts. Visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. Thanks for listening. See you at the next episode.